OPN Ask an Angel podcasts are conversations with global angel investors and venture capitalists. We explore how to invest, understanding investment strategies, and approaches to due diligence. Join us and learn what it takes to be a startup or what it takes to invest in the next great company. Well, just like we like to do is jump right into things. So welcome. Thank you very much for joining us today, Costa. I've been waiting for this call for a while because I've been excited to dive into all these great projects that you're working on, uh, which is very exciting. And I'm sure you get to hear this lots, but um, the way we like to start is if you could share a little bit about your background, a little bit around um, kind of where you started, the things that you've been up to today, and then one thing about you that no one would know. Wow. Um, so something uh, about my background and something that nobody knows. Um, let's see. Um, uh, I, uh, I have an IT background, so worked in uh, IT companies in, in different types of sales roles. Uh, Hewlett Packard, uh, HP for a long time, more than 10 years. And then uh, uh, at uh, Microsoft and um, at both companies, I uh, I was doing service sales, um, more or less. Uh, well, at Microsoft had uh, kind of the whole account uh, for Nokia and NSN at the time and uh, Nokia Siemens Networks, so the networks business. And um, um, yeah, about, uh, well, 10 years ago, a little bit more than 10 years ago, I... Uh, Kind of started to uh, I had enough of the uh, corporate life and uh, wanted to do something else. So I started to look at uh, what uh, what I could do, and I had made some uh, uh, just a couple of angel investments by that time. So uh, I thought that okay, let's see um, uh, how the uh, uh, working life uh, is with the startup companies, and uh, uh, I did that for a year, and and I kind of liked it. Uh, so here I am. 10 years after, and, and uh, I have um, maybe uh, 30, 40 companies in my portfolio uh, and a number of others that uh, I'm somehow connected to advising or mentoring or, or helping out in, in one way or another. Very exciting. And um, uh, been doing that um, in a very detail that uh, um, nobody else knows. So th this is not a complete secret, but uh, in, uh, in Finland, uh, uh, there was a very uh, famous uh, startup accelerator program called Startup Sauna uh, that was started like uh, 2008, 2009, I guess, some, something in, the, in that timeline. And um, um, uh, it's now been on hold for a few years, but uh, um, uh, I'm actually the uh, uh, first angel in investor to invest in a company uh, that was owned at the time, but uh, they changed the name uh, after the first batch. But uh, I invested in a company called Audio Draft. Uh, the company still exists. Uh, very happy about that. Uh, it, it hasn't been a big success yet, but uh, we're still hoping for it to, uh, to be. But uh, did my first angel investment uh, in, into uh, the first batch of that. Awesome. Awesome. We're having a little bit of internet connectivity issues, but we'll, uh, it looks like we'll be able to work our way through them. Um, so I want to kind of go back a little bit to your tech background and then explore kind of how that's um, really enticed your angel investing. So if you go back to your Hewlett Packard and your Microsoft days on the, the technical side, what are the things that really stand out the most that you learned about 
companies? Was it because while you were in these big conglomerates that you were getting access and exposure to early stage companies and that it was giving you kind of this framework for how you invest today? Um, or did it just become uh, a random learning and you just dove into to early stage startups? Um, so how I got started uh, and um, and kind of the impact of the technology company. So um, I, I, let's I'll give you a little bit longer answer. So I, I think uh, because what I learned uh, from companies like HP and Microsoft uh, was kind of how large organizations work and and that uh, has been very useful for me in in many ways so so that there are processes and and uh, there are forms to fill in and and you need to give feedback and you need to receive feedback and you this um, ways of doing things if i put it very uh, clearly and and um, that um, uh, has been helpful in order to understand Kind of how to work with the large companies. So for startups, sometimes working with a large organization is not very easy uh, because there's so many people you need to talk to, and, and you don't really know who actually makes the decision. And, and uh, it could be that the uh, real decision makers or the budgets are sitting somewhere completely else that you're thinking about. So, so that that uh, I, I think has been very uh, very good uh, good learning experience, and and uh, of course the corporate culture. Uh, how it's created, how it's maintained is is very important also to understand. Uh, HP, for example, fantastic ex- example of uh, uh, of a large company that's been successful and uh, uh, it's it's kind of like the original startup. So started like in about 1938 or something uh, in in Palo Alto when there was no Silicon Valley. Uh, so that's good to remember that uh, those guys actually created Silicon Valley to some extent. So. It's uh, great to go back to the roots in in in, in some sense. So um, happy to be kind of rooting for that type of legacy. Uh, but then, uh, if I kind of look at um, how things worked uh, in uh, in HP, in in Microsoft, so both companies are kind of technology driven. So there's a lot of uh, new technology, new innovation they are uh, creating all the time, and uh, uh, that that also draws uh, the attention of uh, of other companies uh, usually they are kind of small or, or medium-sized companies that uh, uh, kind of connect with the large companies to to create some sort of a service offering or a, or a solution and hp had uh, like 20 years back or actually more than 20 years ago they had this uh, uh, function called hp bazaar uh, that was um, um, like um well what it, it's basically what we call co-working spaces nowadays so it was like an open area. Um, I think they had like five or six of them around the world. One was in uh, in Espo in in, uh, in Finland, and, and then they had one in Singapore and somewhere in India. Uh, I think Shanghai and San Francisco, so on. But uh, anyway, the um, the idea was that uh, they opened up uh, like their internal office space and and invited uh, small technology companies and larger ones also to join in. Uh, they held events, um, pizza, Coca-Cola, um, uh, hackathons, and, and so on. And, and uh, the idea was to uh, create uh, buzz um, around kind of what uh, HP is doing, but also to promote uh, kind of all, all different types of uh, technologies and, and see what can come out of that. So um, when you're kind of uh, uh, involved in, in that type of an environment, 
it's it's kind of easy to get uh, uh, excited about the technologies and, and find contacts and, and companies to uh, collaborate with and explore. So because that gave you the exposure to almost new and exciting tech that was coming into the world, it gave you that opportunity to explore those new technologies and then implement them into the business, which gave you exposure to the world of startups, even though startups might not have been coined as startups at the time, probably just a business um, that was uh, leading some cutting edge technology and you guys were able to start working with them. Uh, So in that kind of context, did you kind of feel that your structure and governance and the things that you were learning in the corporate world, as you started to work with these new companies, you started to kind of see this uh, different style of working, different aggressive types, um, maybe a little bit more open to pivot and change because they were working with you. Did you start to kind of learn that whole dynamic of a startup, even though it wasn't, I don't even can't remember what it would have been called back then if it was a startup or they were just classified as um, new age tech or something, but did you find that that type of style of work rubbed off on you? Uh, absolutely, because I, I was representing the corporate life, so that was uh, very, uh, very different. Uh, so I had my calendar full, even though I didn't do anything, and um, uh, kind of uh, the the processes don't work themselves, but uh, they they need the people to actually make it happen. So uh, I, I think the simple answer to your uh, large question there is is that yes, uh, it's. Uh, it's kind of um, what I enjoy actually a lot in my work life today is, is the flexibility and, and, and the possibility to impact my own schedules very heavily and, uh, and the speed of decision making, the agility of, of uh, decision making. In, in a small company, you make a decision and you can change your direction in, in one meeting and uh, hopefully be successful with your decision. But uh, <laughs> the, uh, that, that's that's basically how it goes. So. It's it's true. And, and it rem- I'm, I'm having so many flashbacks of, of this conversation of my time when I worked in big corporate, which was back in 2001. And uh, I worked as a software engineer and, and helped build a lot of platforms and worked in a lot of different things. And what I remember about that is that a lot of startups would get fed into um into myself because people didn't know what i did i was just this internet thing and a lot of those companies that would come in uh the energy that you got from them and the excitement level of them pitching you this new product uh it was almost like a startup would come with this laundry list of here's all the things we can do and let's do them all and you'd be like wow how do i how do i help with all this Uh, and you know I, i remember one specific story worked in in uh the warehouse and with working in that warehouse, they were doing an upgrade at the time to um, putting in a, the new land system so that the remote um, ticking system for scanning all your products, it was, uh, the name is going to elude me at this moment, but they were, uh, they were upgrading it and they weren't upgrading it to a pure Wi-Fi system. They were upgrading it to a docking system, which was still plugged in. And I remember seeing this and thinking, man, your technology isn't even as advanced as what's out there. Why aren't we using the Wi-Fi tech? And it was because big business needed to slowly upgrade. But we had all these companies pitching us. You need to do this and you need to do that. And the excitement level around how fast the technology was moving really got you excited. But then in big corporate, 
they weren't able to handle that rapid change. They were only able to make the next leap and then the next leap uh, because they needed it to be fully tested and make sure that there wasn't any problems. And when you think back, rightfully so, is that maybe they were right that that slower process enabled them not to have dead zones, things that wouldn't uh, connect, having handhelds that were useless. So I, I think that technology, as fast as it runs and as fast as startups in the world wants to work, is that sometimes you do have to have that base level to kind of protect what is your business and how it operates. Your thoughts? Yeah, yeah, that, that it's uh, exactly as you describe it. And, and um, that uh, kind of is, is all, if I turn it around a little bit, so uh, when the startups grow, they, they become scale-ups and growth companies and, and whatever. Some, at certain point, they, they become big companies. And uh, uh, those are kind of the issues uh, that they need to tackle on the way to becoming like more mature. Uh, they, they need to establish the processes, how they can function as a big company. And, and uh, the, I, I think these are fantastic problems to be solved or challenges to tackle uh, as, as your business grows. And, and, but it's important to understand the stage you're at. And uh, uh, yeah, what can I say? That's uh, kind of a very good description I think you gave uh, of the situation at the time then. And I think, um, is it, I think it's Malcolm Gladwell, I believe it was him in one of his books or it was uh, somewhere in there, but shares that, you know, the, the optimal size of a business is a hundred people. And once you get over that, it starts to become very processed and it has to be processed in order to ensure that you're all part of the same team and you're all kind of driving on the same path over that starts to get, um, a lot more, uh, slows things down. And big corporations, obviously, there are hundreds of thousands of people in them. So is there a mentality anywhere that says, you know, I don't want to grow my startup any bigger than this because I want to continue to evolve and grow? Or is it all <laughs> the growth is always to go into being this big company and being a thousand person company? Is that always the mandate for a startup, especially when they're trying to integrate in and become a scale up or, or move across the world? Um, I, I think it depends on the company. So not all companies are uh, intended to be huge 100,000 employee companies. Some companies can be very good functional companies, even though they have like 100 employees and, and generate maybe some tens of millions of uh, uh, revenue or, or, or you know less or, or so. But uh, I, I think it's, uh, it's about uh, being successful in what you do. So you need to have uh, services or products that... Uh, uh, others are uh, interested in in paying for and, and using, and uh, that's kind of the I think the secret to the success. Um, I, I think it's uh, uh, for all companies uh, rapid growth and and uh, reaching huge numbers uh, is is not not the way to go. Some some are kind of better off I think uh, being smaller ones, and uh, they can be very profitable and good businesses though. Well, you just mentioned the key word to that is that they can be very profitable. So do you think it's the fear of an investor like yourself that's going into these early companies that your mind and your growth is about growth and being a thousand person company because that puts bigger dollars into your pocket in the end as an investor? But is that kind of the mindset of every investor that's going in thinking that they have to be a unicorn, that they have to be massive? Or do you think that there is a bit of a mindset that says, hey, you guys are great at this size. 
you're making a lot of money, you're very profitable. Maybe this is the better way of looking at your business. Is that something that comes across your mind? Um, I, I, I don't think anybody says that out loud uh, in a pitching situation. <laughs> and uh, uh, nobody, uh, well, I, I look at maybe 100 slide sets per year, listen to about 100 pitches a year. And um, uh, that, that's a very good pace for me. But um, uh, I have to say that uh, I don't recall a single presentation where somebody is proposing something less than a hockey stick <laughs> of, uh, of growth. Uh, and and um, uh, um, to be honest, I don't know how I would react. Maybe it would be a shocking uh, good experience to actually see a, a presentation where somebody is proposing a little less growth because they, uh, they want to build a a more profitable company or they want to build a better product uh, to be more sustainable or something like that. Actually, that might be a good idea for some teams to try out and see if they can capture the uh, attention of the investors uh, better that way. There, when I started my first company, I, I, um, I was at a, a wedding in the Dominican and I met an entrepreneur and he had been an entrepreneur for 10 years running uh, a larger business. And his advice to me was, you won't know you're a company until you've been a company for five years. And I held that one pretty dearly because as I was building my company, uh, I kept saying to myself, oh my God, I'm coming up to five years. I still don't feel I know what I'm doing right. And I don't know if I'm doing it perfect. So I always challenged myself. And then at year five, I realized, and I said, oh man, I had this epiphany. I think I'm on the right tra track. I feel like I'm doing the right things. So Maybe he was right that it needed time to mature and grow and understand your, your, what you're selling and what you're building. But it's also the mindset of, am I trying to be a hockey stick or am I trying to be a global brand or a business? Or can I just build something that's profitable? And that's also a good thing. And I wonder if there is a way that with these hundred companies that you see, that if someone did take that approach and say, you're not really a, a scalable company, but you have some really good tech. And you, or you have a really good business model here, you shouldn't try to over-aggressively do this, go slower, because the bigger potential for you is that you could probably hit hockey stick growth in year seven or eight. But if you go on the trajectory you're going now, you're not going to get there. You're going to fail. So instead of having you fail, try this method and go a little bit slower. Don't over-hire and overspend but grow with your tech and grow with your customers. You're going to be successful, but it's going to take you 10 plus years. Do you think that that would change the mindset of the entrepreneur and think, oh, they don't understand me or they don't get me? Or would it actually make them think, hey, you know what? This is a long-term play and maybe I should be less aggressive and not burn my uh, dollars and burn myself out. Um, yes, um, I, I could say that I could give that type of advice. Uh, and in, in many cases, I, I guess it would be very appropriate to do that. Uh, nobody wants to waste anyone's time and money. And, and um, it's, it's, uh, it's always good to give accurate uh, uh, advice to, to somebody. But uh, uh, very often also the uh, uh, entrepreneurs are, are very passionate about what they do. So uh, to be honest, they don't always listen. Uh, and, and if they hear the, the advice, it could be that they just, you know, don't don't understand or they just overlook that as well uh which is of course not good uh but um you know building a, a new venture new company it's uh, it's 24 times 7 type of work so uh, kind of understandable so very often my role 
uh, as an angel investor is to kind of keep the feet to the ground and and, and try to point the direction and, and uh, just gently give a push that, okay, have you considered that? Have you considered this? And, and uh, how about if we uh, next time do things a little bit differently and, and so on. So, Well, it's interesting uh, because I take back the comment where, or I analyzed the comment where you said if your first investment is still around and it's still doing well. It hasn't grown to what you have expected at this point, but it doesn't mean it won't. So I think it's just setting expectations either in your own mind with the companies you're investing in, or it's the coaching that may come out. And that's why that company is still here today. And that's why the company is still growing. Uh, they may have not exited, but they have significantly grown since the time you first invested in them. And they're still here, which I think speaks volumes to the companies you pick or the companies that you get behind is that duration, uh, a long duration doesn't mean that it's not successful. It's successful in their own mind, but I'm sure a little push here and there could escalate them a little bit more. So I guess you could take it that you're doing a great uh, job and you're helping these companies move along because not many can say they have startups that have lasted and still out there after five years, 10 years, even 20. So I think that's, that's pretty, uh, pretty awesome. So if we, if we yeah, take a, and, and Oh, we're having yeah, some and, 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 uh, um, yeah, yeah. Just uh, wanted to kind of uh, uh, say that uh, this um, uh, company that's uh, been around for more than ten years now—it's uh, they uh, they have pivoted their business model several times. So uh, it's not that uh, it's still doing exactly the same thing as it set out to do, but uh, they have changed and, and uh, pivoted a little bit to uh, kind of the business um, they're in, um, and uh, I think that has been. Uh, a good learning uh, and, and uh, it's a good example that uh, uh, you need to adapt also to the market conditions, how, how your customers work and uh, uh, change your business model accordingly. And with, with those pivots, did you find that, uh, did they have to go and raise more money to make the pivots so that they were able to continue to be successful or were they able to utilize what they had originally built and make that pivot on the dime of the business? Um, it's uh, it's a split. Uh, so, sometimes yes, sometimes no. So it has uh, depended on the situation a little bit. But um, basically, the new ideas have come from the old model of doing things, and and uh, then suddenly uh, everybody's realized that hey, we are not doing the right things uh, because the customers are heading somewhere else. We we need to be where the customers are, or we need to meet the new requirements, and uh, then uh, kind of it, it started a process where. Uh, the business model and, and uh, services have been kind of reconsidered and uh, rebuilt, basically. Very exciting. So in this kind of learning and process that you've gone through over the last 20, 30 years of being in tech, uh, you also created venture firms and you started to utilize these as a way to invest. And I'm going to call you a pioneer because you've started these a lot earlier than most investors have. It's not common to see that somebody's been investing in startups for 10, 20 years. Uh, it's been kind of more of a new phenomenon in the last probably five to 10. So how do you feel that um, you coming into this space early has also helped you better understand types of startups or things that you like to invest in? How did that shape over the last 10, 15 years that you've been doing this? Um, so how, how it's changed my, uh, um, way of working uh, significantly, I would say, uh, because when I started, um, 
the uh, startup investments uh, like immediately after the corporate career uh, I, I, you know I was full of uh, uh, tech and uh, uh, software and, and uh, I was looking only basically technology startups uh, because I thought that I know everything about that and of course I was wrong uh, but um, you know, that's how it goes and and uh, kind of uh, uh, learned uh, over the years, a little bit that uh, um, okay, there, there are others, other other companies, other industries uh, that might be very good investments as well. So um, lately, I've been looking at uh, very very different types of uh, companies, and, and um, uh, like um, I, I think most business angels, we we work in uh, in networks. So I have a, a network of friends uh, that uh, when there's a new slide set, I. I I call somebody who I know might be interested in in, in that type of a case and, and vice versa. And um, that's kind of how I've, I've sort of uh, uh, stumbled onto uh, uh, friends who some, some are specialized in uh, impact investing and some specialized in food investing and, and so on. And uh, sometimes the cases are very uh, interesting. So uh, uh, it makes sense to actually uh, invest in, in education, for example. Uh, which uh, I, I never considered as as a business at all, but uh, a good friend of mine uh, is is very very uh, passionate about education. So I've uh, been making a few investments in in that sector as well in the past years. Uh, food very similar situation. And uh, uh, to answer your question about the, um, uh, the kind of the venture model or, or utilizing uh, investment companies as vehicles, I don't think there's anything special about that. For me, it was. Uh, very uh, sort of natural uh, evolution to use uh, an investment company. Uh, so I, I have one um, kind of like a fa family office one, which uh, uh, I, I use for personal uh, investments. Then I have another one called Random Ventures that uh, I own 50-50 with an angel investor friend of mine. And, um, um, you know, depending on the case, um, making investments from either or uh, vehicle and uh, it's it's really just a tool uh, to to make the investments. Um, of course, the the random ventures one has a little bit of a philosophy behind it. So uh, we make small, fast tickets to to businesses that we understand very little about. And um, uh, the first investment was into a dog food company uh, that makes uh, uh, domestic uh, dried dog foods in Finland and and. Uh, I'm I'm very allergic no pets at the Valtonen household and and my uh, my friend said pretty much the same thing but uh, uh, what um, we we were both sold when we were told by the the company that 100% of the dried dog foods in Finland are imported so we thought okay that that that's not good so that that needs to change so uh, made sense to uh, uh, make an investment into the company and they've been surprisingly successful so uh, that has been a very good uh, good investment so. So going out of your comfort zone has been a good thing. Yes. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, which is good because a lot of um, angel investors, I find that they have the room to be able to expand their portfolio uh, because they will work with other people, learn from them and make that investment. And it does become a success. Even like I said, when they know a lot about one area, uh, that one area, sometimes maybe you have blinders on to it as well, because you think that, oh, this might be too hard to do. This might be uh, a fast win or 
and find out that it's not. And it took a lot longer because maybe the tech is advanced further than uh, you could have imagined or how you worked with it. Whereas someone coming into a new space that hasn't seen tech or hasn't been able to operate the same way, this new change could really bolster uh, uh, a new big company out of it. So that's, uh, that's exciting. And I think a lot of investors probably should take that mindset more to partner with people and look at like-minded or people that have stronger skills in different areas so that you can make some exciting new adventure uh, investments. Absolutely. So one of the, one of the things that um, really attracted to me to what you guys were doing, what you were doing is that you have a couple of ventures that uh, you're currently working on, which are, I think, massive, massive, massive impact, um, especially on the countries. So uh, I have to touch on this before um, we go into the rapid fire questions, but can you give us a little bit of an understanding and share a bit more about the tunneling project and uh, how this is all put together and how you fit into this? And are you an investor in it? Are you uh, running the project? How did the project get started? Um, all that stuff would be love. I'd love to hear about it. All right. So I I'll give you the, uh, the short version of the tunnel story. So, um, uh, about five years ago, um, a friend of mine, Peter Westerbach, uh, gave me a call one Saturday morning and said that, Hey, Kusta, I know what we're going to do next. And, um, uh, kind of his, uh, he was in, uh, in Estonia, in Tallinn that day. He had uh, attended the uh, Latitude 59 uh, startup event um, there the previous night. Uh, fantastic event, by the way. Everybody should attend. <laughs> and uh, um, they had uh, uh, at the dinner table been talking about uh, kind of how convenient it would be uh, if we would have a tunnel connecting Tallinn and Helsinki. And uh, it will be very fast to connect uh, with the railway. Uh, through the tunnel. Uh, nowadays, it takes about two and a half hours with a ferry, and uh, it's um, it, not very frequent travel and, and so on. So it's it's a little bit uh, uh, lengthy to go over and, and, and back. So anyway, um, Peter said that uh, um, maybe um, uh, you could kind of uh, find the funding for this project. So I said, sure, why not? Uh, I, I know a little bit about funding and fundraising. And, and uh, then I asked him the question, how much funding do you expect uh, us to need to build a tunnel? Sounds expensive. And he said, uh, yeah, they told me about 15 billion euros. So um, that's um, that's a lot of money, I told Peter and, and uh, uh, asked him to give me a day or two and, and uh, I'll figure it out. <laughs> Only a day or two to raise that? That's good. Well, it was, a Saturday, it was a Saturday morning, so um, <laughs> I needed to... Uh, think about it. So Monday morning, I, I kind of came up with the uh, thought that, okay, uh, who, who has this type of uh, money? Okay, maybe the European Investment Bank, uh, that they, they probably have money. So I, I went on their website and there was a help desk number and, and I called them and uh, introduced myself. <laughs> and, uh, uh, the guy, guy on the line said that, uh, well, he was very helpful. He uh, ran through their instruments and, and uh, then he came to the numbers. So kind of how, how large funding they can offer and, and uh, like uh, tens of million to, to hundreds of million. I said, oh, that little, uh, don't you have any more <laughs> or any bigger instruments? And uh, um, then he, he started to ask, okay, what is this project? So I told him that we're building this tunnel to connect Finland and Estonia. And uh, that kind of got us started. Uh, Peter is a, uh, is a very uh, uh, visible figure in the public. He's, uh, he's the guy who was uh, uh, working at Robio to create the Angry Birds saga, uh, and, and uh, he's done a lot of other stuff too. 
and um, uh, he was uh, kind of uh, the following week then uh, in, in in media attending one hackathon and, and uh, he kind of raised the topic there and said that okay we're building this tunnel and and uh, let's see what happens and then that kind of led to many things and and uh, uh, we, we've known each other for a long, long time, and um, we're both kind of doers. Uh, so, so when we get something, uh, some idea that uh, how, how do we make things happen, then we, we don't plan too much, but uh, we, we start to do things and, and we kind of plan as we move along. So we uh, we then started to identify how how this type of a tunnel infrastructure can be built, and, and then we found some partners to help us. We called uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers to help us with the business plan and calculations in the first place. And uh, then we just started to work it. And uh, now about five years after, uh, we, are, we are running a project, uh, world's longest undersea railway tunnel, 103 kilometers long and uh, uh, connecting the capital cities of Estonia and Finland and creating uh, a very large new metropolitan area, uh, hopefully in the future. Um, so that's uh, that's kind of the, the short version. Um, and uh, uh, yes, I, I'm I'm um, I'm running the company, uh, doing a lot of uh, practical things. So uh, I'm an entrepreneur in that sense. Uh, and um, uh, Peter and I have been funding the company uh, from the beginning. So we're also investors in the company. Uh, but of course, we don't have 15 billion euros uh, to start with. That's a that's a lot of money I have learned. <laughs> but uh, we have uh, committed investors. Uh, we have um, uh, companies, organizations who actually know about uh, constructing tunnels. So uh, we uh, work with them and, and uh, uh, doing environmental impact assessments uh, in both countries. Um, doing tunnel design, detail design. Uh, a lot of politics uh, are, are, are involved, so we have had to do a lot of uh, kind of political lobbying and uh, make sure that uh, uh, everybody understands that uh, what, what we are doing and, and how it's impacting uh, the countries and the region and so on. And uh, for us, uh, the tunnel is just a detail, so it's it's uh, it's just one little detail of, of kind of the whole plan. So. What we actually set out to do is to, to create economic growth into the area. So we have uh, two fantastic countries. Finland uh, has created a, a number of unicorn companies. I think we are uh, uh, in, in top one or two places uh, of uh, VC capital, venture capital uh, to uh, per, per, uh, per capita in, in the world. Uh, Estonia, number one in creating unicorn companies per capita in the world. So 1.3 million people, and uh, they've created seven unicorn companies so far. Skype, for example, originating from uh, Estonia and so on. Uh, so th there's uh, a lot of good activity going on in the area, and that's why we call it the finest Bay Area, uh, Finest. Uh, so uh, it's a player word, but uh, we it's, it's not just any Bay Area, but it's the finest Bay Area. Nobody can uh, kind of argue that uh, it's not. And um, uh, for us, this uh, tunnel uh, will enable uh, us to create kind of this economic boost. Uh, uh, we, we hope that uh, it will attract more uh, startup founders, students to come and study uh, in Finland, in Estonia, uh, maybe uh, start their own business and, and be successful, stay and live here and uh, change the world on, on their behalf. So 
that, that's it. kind of a the nutshell story. Well, it's an amazing story, and uh, I get goosebumps just hearing it because it's a massive, massive, massive project. And Estonia does have an awesome ecosystem. I've met so many great entrepreneurs in Estonia. Uh, the government is so well backing the uh, the whole ecosystem. And of course, in Finland, doing the exact same thing, uh, they're bringing people in all over the world to help them build a huge and a massive um, undertaking, but a great ecosystem as well. So did you guys, when you're doing this process to build this out, was a lot of it based on um, what the through traffic would be. So did you have to analyze all the flights going in and out of both countries and how, uh, how much, um, economic value can really come back to each city so that you can kind of divide the costs. Is that the idea of getting both countries built into this so that they can see the value that would come out because you're undertaking, maybe it's 15 billion, but I'm sure when it's done, it'll be 30 billion. Uh, because it probably will have a lot of um, nuances that will get corrected, fixed. Startups will come in. There'll be a lot of real amazing build in this. But has there been a, in that analysis, is it really all about uh, how these two countries can come closer together? Or is it more about how many jobs can we create and how much value can we bring back to the ecosystem in both countries? Uh, that, that's a very broad question. Uh, and um, uh, it's, it's all of that and more. Uh, and um, kind of uh, when we uh, started to build the business case, we we did it exactly as you would do it for any any business, small business. Uh, you you know you take an Excel sheet and, and you start from there. But uh, uh, we uh, fortunately found some uh, um, like very good business models that uh, or like frameworks that have been built. So we have been using the uh, World Bank uh, Railway Reform Toolkit methodology. Uh, that's like uh, the the manual alone is like 650 pages or something like that. So uh, it Amazing. took our uh, economist, uh, yeah, like one one summer when he uh, he built the model. But uh, um, uh, kind of ba based on that, we um, we we just uh, estimated um, uh, different types of uh, uh, parameters: uh, uh, traffic volumes, cargo volumes, uh, ticket pricing, uh, lifetime of a tunnel. And so on, and, and uh, all, all sorts of interest rates, inflation rates, and so on. You know, all, all the basic stuff that you need yep. to build a business case. And, and we we got some very good numbers out of that, so that was uh, encouraging. And, and uh, uh, then we kind of uh, just worked it from there. Um, the the uh, actual impact uh, uh, calculations and estimates were done by uh, a professional uh, market research agency in Finland that uh, does that uh, like all the time. And, and uh, they found a very good reference case for us. Uh, there's a, a tunnel and a bridge combination that connects Sweden and Denmark uh, that was built about 20 years ago. And um, uh, that gives us a very good reference point that uh, uh, what happened when the, the Öresund uh, bridge that connects Malmö in, in Sweden and Copenhagen in Denmark opened uh, that uh, basically uh, uh, employed all the unemployed people in, in, in Malmö area in Sweden. They all went to Copenhagen to work and, and all the uh, Danish people bought uh, second homes or, or first homes in uh, in Sweden. So the, the property pricing went up. So it, it, it has been a very good uh, uh, collaboration overall for those countries. So we anticipate something similar will happen between Finland and Estonia when the tunnel opens. Amazing. Amazing. It's, it's just, uh, yeah. 
How do you sleep at night? I'd be so excited all the time working on this project. I wouldn't be able to sleep. I would be just wanting to keep going. Another cup of coffee and another uh, build out. Um, so I guess the, the big I, question I sleep, is... I sleep well. <laughs> uh, the, big, the, next, the big question before we transition again, but what, what's the, when do you break ground? What does that look like? What's the timing? Uh, well, uh, we hope that uh, we could start uh, to drill and blast or bore next year, so um, 2022. Uh, it's going to require a lot of uh, hard work, but uh, that's what we're aiming for. And uh, uh, we have uh, set ourselves uh, the target that um, uh, the trains would be running 24th of December 2024. So uh, that's not far away, but um, it's no, not at all. That's awesome. Well, I look forward to hearing more about it. And, and uh, if you need us to raise some money over here, we'd be more than happy to. I think that would be very exciting to be able to jump into a massive project like this. Uh, okay, I got to ask one more question. How do you think this project will scope and change the way other countries look at themselves? Do you think that this will open up a more countries to want to do something similar? Uh, I am sure more countries will want to do something similar uh, because it's uh, it sets an example that uh, something like this can be done, and uh, it's going to have uh, a big impact on 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 the people, on on societies, uh, economies, and so on. And and I'm not saying we're the first ones. And this is not the tunnel is not even our idea. It has been flowing around in, in Finland, Estonia since like 1850s or something, I think the first reference points. And uh, as I mentioned, this uh, Sweden-Denmark example, uh, they've done it already. Uh, and now they're actually planning a new tunnel. But uh, one thing, if, if I, I, I may um, uh, still kind of connect uh, uh, this huge mega project uh, back to kind of what we were talking about and, and what kind of I, I, I think is the focus of this uh, uh, podcast series uh, or webinar series uh, is that uh, for us, the tunnel also acts as a, uh, an accelerator for uh, different types of innovation and technologies. Because it's such a large project, it allows us to, uh, to look for innovation uh, that helps us to build a safer tunnel faster, uh, more cost efficiently and so on. And uh, we have found many, many good uh, technologies that uh, will help us to do that. And uh, I, I think that those are kind of the, when you said that you'd like to uh, maybe collect a few friends in Canada and, 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 and the US and, and come and help us to build a tunnel, uh, more than welcome. Uh, but maybe I invite you guys to uh, come and over and, and uh, invest into these little uh, startups and technology companies that are going to help us to build the tunnel, because that's uh, kind of where the uh, big value add is, I think, uh, for all of us. I wholeheartedly agree with that. That's a, a great way to segment it into um, the conversation we were having before as well, where it was bringing companies in to work in this space, opening up a whole new realm of, of a startup ecosystem that no one would have thought could have existed because, you know, 20, 30 years ago when they were doing this, startups weren't as prevalent as they are today. Um, and it was the same discussion we had about the mines and going underground and, and acting like it's Mars and bringing all these startups from Israel and around the world that are looking to uh, go to Mars and utilize that new tech. And the only space they can do is it underground and it's, you know, 50 meters underground and that's where they're able to test that startup equipment. So I love that. And, and I like the way you're thinking is that there's such a big opportunity for a whole new area of startups to come in and start finding ways to burrow quicker, faster, 
change the way concrete's being structured and made. There's a lot of things that can come out of this one project that can open this up around the world and create a whole different mega project industry. Um, and it's built around a lot of startups that would come in. And of course, it's going to have the base, which is your main construction, your main uh, data analytics companies. But there's so many startups that can now uh, build and become a part of this big engine. Exactly. Very exciting. Uh, exactly what, yeah. I love it. I'm glad you like it. Yeah, no, it's very exciting. I want to move to Finland now. We need a big project like this. Um, all right, so we're going to have to plow through some of this stuff quickly because I know I don't want to uh, take up, I would talk about this all day with you because it is very exciting. Uh, not too many people can say that they're in a startup that's building a mega tunnel that's worth 15 billion. So uh, very exciting on top of all the other investments and things that you do. Um, but just quickly, one question I always love to ask it is, what does it take? And maybe this is the story. And you don't even have to tell one because you just told me what it takes to be a startup and what it uh, really entails. But I always like to look for a story in all the time that you've been investing and in. you've had your venture firm for 30 years. So you've been investing a lot, seen a lot of startups throughout time. You've seen the world change. Um, is there a startup that really just comes to mind that you just love the story that perseverance and what they went through got them to having an awesome uh, build out or they went through a troubled time and they were able to get through it. Is there any heartfelt story that really pops to mind that really um, announces what it takes to be an entrepreneur and what it takes to be a startup? Um, one, one company uh, comes to mind and, and uh, it's actually one that connects with the tunnel project very closely uh, that we're working with at the moment. Uh, I haven't invested in the company, maybe uh, down the line, <laughs> but uh, uh, it's a company called GA Drilling uh, from Slovakia. Uh, they've been around maybe eight years, uh, eight plus years. Uh, they've um, uh, done maybe, uh, well, let's say tens of patents uh, and uh, about 100 people been working there and, and uh, uh, they do plasma drilling. So the, the uh, patents and technology they have uh, created is, uh, is to help uh, uh, drill uh, faster boreholes. And uh, they, uh, they started to work with the uh, uh, decommissioning of oil wells. So they, they basically, when uh, oil well dries out, uh, they've used the technology to uh, decommission that, close it down uh, in a cost-efficient way. Um, but uh, they uh, last year when the pandemic hit us, uh, so they started to suffer because uh, less and less uh, people could travel and, and uh, there were less and less uh, oil wells needed and, and decommissioned and so on. So it, it really hit their business. But uh, uh, we started to talk to these guys uh, a couple of years ago already. And uh, uh, when, uh, uh, when they um, uh, do the vertical drilling, uh, kind of everybody realized that, oh, they can also do horizontal drilling. So uh, when we uh, plan to use tunnel boring machines for our tunnel boring, uh, we, we're now uh, investigating and, and testing how we can use this plasma drilling uh, on the tunnel boring machines. So uh, the uh, first uh, estimates are that we could actually use this plasma drilling and make the tunnel boring machines go maybe even up to 10 times faster than uh, with the conventional methods. 
So that's a that's a fantastic example that uh, uh, where we can find innovation that uh, can help us to be more efficient. And and, and for this uh, company, it's it's uh, it's a great example that uh, they they they're not uh, pivoting, but uh, they're kind of uh, just looking at their business uh, from a different angle, and uh, that's helping them to find. Uh, like a new way of of, of uh, reaching out to the industry and and maintaining the business basically. So that's brilliant. And I I think to to add on to that, which is a great story, is that when you start to go through adversity or you start to put yourself in the thick of a problem, you'll start to realize that there are other problems that can come out of that that you can solve, and then your business can decide which one is going to bring the most value back to your customer and which one is going to be a larger, more scalable solution. Um, as long as you've got your eyes and ears open, you should be able to find these problems and you won't find them if you're not in the thick of it. They don't just appear out of nowhere. They really have to be in there. And I'm sure you guys in this project, you're going to come across a lot of little problems that you're going to think, man, I need someone to solve this problem because it's costing us a lot of money or a lot of time. And it's such a small nuisance that is going to be there forever because it needs to get solved. So it's pretty innovative and pretty exciting because you might create a lot of new companies just out of building uh, this tunnel that you probably didn't imagine. You'll start with a hundred startups helping you, but you might end up with a thousand because there might be that many little nuanced problems that you'll come up with that can turn into a big escalating uh, issue that if you don't create a solution for it, you, you might not be able to move the project forward. Exactly. And uh, we've only been talking about the physical stuff now, uh, when we kind of get to the digital uh, travel experience, that's when uh, we feel that we're even more comfortable with what, uh, what we, what's kind of lined up. So um, fantastic things to come. Oh, we're man. Very exciting. So exciting. So exciting. Very, very, very cool. Um, all right. We're going to transition now into the, the quick uh, rapid fire questions. So uh, we're ready to go. Okay. All right. What is your favorite part of investing? Meeting the new people. Okay. How many companies do you invest in per year? Uh, on average, two to three new companies. Love it. Uh, any specific verticals that you like to focus on? Uh, in the last couple of years, uh, food has been uh, kind of a new vertical that I've been focusing on. I love food. F food's awesome for investing. I agree. Uh, do you have any due diligence requirements that you need in order to make an investment? Uh, in addition to kind of all the usual stuff, numbers and, and um, uh, validation, uh, uh, I mostly look at the team. Are they capable of delivering uh, on the promise? So that's very important for me. Okay. What are your timelines if you make an investment? from the start to the end of the investment? Uh, Long-term. Uh, and uh, as we spoke, uh, uh, the path of each startup is a little bit different. So, uh, but on uh, their uh, long-term investment. Okay. Uh, outside of the team requirements, is there any um, paperwork or anything that really stands out in the company that you really want to make sure that if you're going to put your money in, it has to have these key things. Um, the ba basics need to be in place. So uh, a shareholder agreement is super important. And uh, uh, 
that uh, of course the content varies company by company again, but uh, a good fair shareholder agreement needs to be in place. So some That's element of governance. Yes. Okay. Do you lead rounds? Uh, sometimes, but I'm very often uh, kind of the one of the first or, or the first investor in the companies. So uh, um, in, in that sense, yeah, yes, I, I do lead rounds every now and then. Okay. Uh, do you have any preferred terms, pref shares, common safes, anything that you like best? No, uh, no, not really. I, I try to avoid uh, very specific uh, uh, deviations from kind of a very standard package. So try to keep it very simple and straightforward. Okay. Uh, do you do follow-on investments? I do. Okay. Uh, do you take board seats? Uh, yes. I uh, um, Every New Year's resolution, uh, I look at how many board seats I have. And uh, last uh, year, I had like 21. And uh, I made a promise that I need to cut it to half because I don't have the time. And, and I think I'm down to 18 now, so I'm very happy. <laughs> That's good. A little bit of chopping uh, frees up some of your time. Uh, okay, last question. What was what was the story that got you started in investing in early stage companies? What was the story? Uh, I suppose the uh, uh, success of others. Uh, that uh, that's very uh, encouraging and and uh, uh, very good role model. So uh, uh, kind of seeing how people are able to grow the companies into uh, successful businesses and and. Uh, that that's lead by example. I so that's what triggered you, got you excited, and you're like, I got to invest in these guys. This looks too cool. I got to jump into it. Yep, I love it. I love it. Um, okay, we're gonna we're gonna ask a few more personal questions, and then we're all wrapped up, and we'll probably have to do part two because uh, I'm gonna want to learn more about this tunnel business because uh, <laughs> it's very exciting. I want to dive into that deeper. But uh, so on the personal side. Uh, the personal questions are as follows. First one, what is your favorite sports team? Favorite sports team? Uh, I like to watch ice hockey, so I'm going to say uh, the Jokerit, uh, uh, Helsinki-based uh, ice hockey team, playing in the uh, KHL, so the uh, Russian League. Very exciting. So they would be, um, I guess at the end, they could be playing Canada in the uh, the finals against... Uh, Finland or something, we could probably have that happen. I'm sure it's happened a few times. Absolutely. Very cool. Well, it is our national sport. Well, actually, basketball might be our national sport soon because uh, I think the expense of hockey, it's, uh, it's changed the way uh, Canadians play sport. But uh, hockey was, I guess, our number one sport as well. Uh, favorite movie and what character would you play in the movie? Wow. Um, favorite movie. Uh, now you got me. Um, let, let's say Star Wars. Uh, I, I love the whole series, um, all of the sequels and so on. And uh, um, uh, not Darth Vader, but let's say Han Solo type of person more. Han Solo. I like it. It's a good character. It's good. And you can't go wrong with Star Wars. It is a fan favorite. Big fan myself. I, one, of our, one of the interviews I did earlier on, 
Um, he also picked Star Wars, and uh, he was Yoda. So uh, <laughs> good choice. <laughs> I thought you can't go wrong by being Yoda. I'm like, all right, that's good. He's, uh, I said, I actually said, I thought you were more like, um, what's this guy's, what's his name? Uh, uh, Lanzo. I said, I thought you were more a Lanzo. And he's like, no, I'm a Yoda. And I was like, done, done. <laughs> so very exciting. Um, all right, last question. What, what is your superpower? Um. My superpower, um, I um, actually, I don't know how to, um, I, I need to describe it. I don't have a word for it in English, but uh, uh, I have, well, I have patience. So uh, uh, I'm uh, patient enough to wait uh, for things to happen. So if, if something doesn't happen immediately, then uh, uh, I, I wait or I work uh, towards the uh, desired goal. So uh, a patient investor, patient uh, entrepreneur, and so on. I love it. It's a good skill to have. And, and as you mentioned earlier, you're a doer. You like to get things done. So it's a, it's a good passive-aggressive style of getting things done. So it works out awesome. Well, Costa, I, I want to say thank you very much for your time today. We learned a lot. I took notes. I, I always say I won't, but I do because I can't help it. It's my, uh, my way of um, remembering everything that goes on. But again, thank you very much for your time today. We will have to do a part two because we're going to have to follow up on this massive project. We're, be... we're happy to do a tunnel edition for you guys. Uh, oh, that would point. be amazing. Uh, very exciting. Very exciting. Um, so the way we like to end it is we like to leave it with giving you the last word. So anything that you want to share or say to entrepreneurs or say to investors, uh, I leave it for you uh, to share that. And again, thank you very much for your time today. Thanks. And, and uh, to everyone uh, uh, listening and, and to all the entrepreneurs there, be persistent, uh, be patient and, and uh, uh, focus on the uh, goals you want to reach. You, you'll get there one day. I love it. Awesome. Thank you very much again, Costa, for your time. Okay. That was pretty amazing. It's not very often that you get to chat with someone building a $6 billion tunnel or building a project or a business that's $6 billion. Uh, so Really cool, really cool. So um, I think that a lot of great things that uh, uh, Costa talked about are, you know, just the perseverance, the drive, sticking to your goals. Um, and I love the best part of it was that he likes, he's a doer, he likes to get things done. And just taking an idea of uh, someone calling you and saying, what do you think of this? And the excitement level to jump on that and actually start building a project and getting close to breaking ground in the next year, you can't get much more of a doer than that. That's pretty phenomenal. So, uh, and you'll see, look, man, where there's a will, there's a way it's been talked about for over 150 years. Someone wanted to build this tunnel and these guys are the ones doing it. They were able to put pen to paper and make it happen. So, you know, you've got big lofty goals and dreams. You'll find the way to get there. And, and they certainly did. So, uh, not only from an entrepreneur side, but also from an investor side, these, uh, uh, very exciting stories. Um, and he's been a venture capitalist for over 30 years. And again, that is uh, pretty amazing what, uh, what they've accomplished and what he's done. So in saying that, um, thank you for joining us and we will all connect very soon. So if you can share, like post tweet, all these great things, socially feed us out. Uh, we'd love to, 
learn more. So feel free to send us an email also at info at opn.ninja. Uh, and we would be happy to get you on our podcast if, uh, if you're exploring and changing the world of investment. Thank you and have a great day.